today we began a new series walking through the Old Testament book of Exodus. If you are familiar with scripture reading at all, uh, it's in the first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch, which is uh, five writings or five letters, and it is the second letter of the entire Bible. Exodus is also famous for Moses, partings of seas, plagues, Ten Commandments, mountains, pillars of fire, and all of that dramatic writing. What we will look at as we walk through this series is what God spoke to the people originally, what he is teaching us about the life and power of Jesus, and then how that will move our church body forward. I encourage you, if as Gavin said, you are working on what your Bible reading is going to be this year, if you want to even start slowly and a year through the Bible is overwhelming, read through Exodus while we start this year. It's 40 chapters and you can read through it over the next month or so as we walk through it as a church. We will walk through it from the beginning to the end, focusing each Sunday on little highlight moments. If you are in a small group, that's the best way also to follow along in this series as you'll be doing your inductive Bible studies through portions of this book as well. If you join with me as we'll read this morning's text from Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 is where we will begin. There are Bibles underneath half of your chairs. I'll be reading in the New Living Translation. It's behind me on the screen as well. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is, Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from our country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves, and they appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers, for the king. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you speak to us in your word this morning. May we discover more of who you are and may that shape who we are. We pray this in your name. Amen. Why start the letter this way? Uh, we know that the most exciting way for the Bible to ever start an introduction is with a long list of genealogies and Old Testament names, right? It's your favorite. As we read through this, I always wonder and don't have an answer to this, why some of the names we never use anymore. Have you ever met an Issachar? No, probably not. But others are like Dan and Ben. Some feel so accessible, some feel so ancient, but it's a list of names, if you are an Israelite in the first century reading this letter, this actually would be an action-packed way to begin. It's listing out the generations of the patriarchs and how they ended up here. You probably would be familiar with the book of Genesis and that Genesis ends kind of with a cliffhanger. God creates a chosen people through Abraham, is working through their messy lives and blessing them, brings them into Egypt, and then the letter ends kind of cryptically 
with God's people, not in the promised land, but in this foreign nation of Egypt. And it ends with this strange refrain of what man meant for evil, God is using for good. So you would end Genesis and say, well, what happens to them? The letter opens with this idea that they grew, blessed, were forgotten, and were enslaved. And you would now say, well, then what does this mean? What does this mean about God's chosen people? What does it mean to be blessed by God? That doesn't seem like a blessing to be enslaved and to be forgotten in a foreign land. How does God work in the world? How does he work with those that he is working through? How does humanity treat each other? You're left with these big enticing questions about God and about humanity. We read about his chosen people now in a gripping opening, setting the stage for what's he going to do and where are these people going to go. Interestingly as well, we are still in the Christmas season. I know that in the United States and the Western world, once the first week after New Year's happens, we're supposed to forget it altogether and we move on and we start making our lists of all the things we need to improve in our lives and feel bad about. I need to go back to the gym. I need to buy a journal I'm never going to fulfill. I need to start a new Bible reading plan. I need to invite all these people over my house. I need to buy a Dutch oven and get good at baking. We do all of these things in this moment. But in the church tradition, it is still Christmas. It is still Christmas time all the way until we get to Lent. I say this because the Christmas story is strongly connected back to the story of Exodus. Intentionally, the Bible authors want us to see Exodus as we see the birth of Jesus. Where Matthew begins the story of Christ's birth the same way as the author of Exodus begins Moses' birth with a genealogy. And a revelation that almost 1,500 years after Exodus, Israel is now once again under the enslavement of a tyrant king. This time it's Rome and not Egypt. It's Augustus instead of Pharaoh. They are yearning for freedom, not just from a foreign nation anymore, but freedom from the internal sin and brokenness of being human. The gospel authors cite Exodus more than any other Old Testament story as Jesus and Moses are both born into a genocide that they miraculously escape to then set their people free, reveal God's kingdom from mountaintop teachings, lead a community divisible by 12, provide for them through dangerous seas and in deserts longing for bread to form a new community established by blood of a sacrificial lamb where God's presence now lives among them. The gospel authors make many references to Exodus throughout each of the stories of Jesus' life. If we don't understand Exodus, we miss a significant part of what Jesus was doing, who Jesus was, and who he is. For example, why does Jesus teach from mountainsides so often or go up onto them? What's the deal with that? Why is it significant that he uses these I am statements in John? Why is the Last Supper set during Passover? Actually, for example, what is Passover? Why 12 disciples? Why not 10? That is base 10 and much more divisible. Why is the feeding of the 5,000 told in every single gospel story? Why is that story so important? 
As we begin this Exodus series, we will look at this letter in six weeks. We won't do justice to the entirety of the letter, but I think we'll get pretty close. This morning, we will talk about no Exodus to know Jesus, Exodus 1, 1 through 10. Next week, we will talk about the wounded healer as we look at Moses encountering God at a desperate moment of his life in Exodus 3. We will then talk about plagues and Passover in Exodus 12. The next week, we'll talk about God's provision as we talk about bread and water, God leading them through seas and providing miraculous bread. We will then talk about getting the slavery out of Israel as it is easier to get Israel out of slavery than it is to get the mindset and heart set of being slaves out of his people before closing out with Exodus 34 and talking about the name of God and how we know him as he tells us who he is. Again, If you feel like you're going to miss anything in this series, the best way to do it is to sign up for a small group and walk through those inductive studies along with us as we study communally. Let's begin at the top. Exodus teaches us how to read the Bible. One of the most important things Exodus does is it teaches us what the Bible is about and how we read and understand it. This is the new year, as we've established. It is a time, as Gavin has said, of trying new Bible reading plans. I don't know what you have done in your life. I have done all of them. I've tried every Bible reading plan from having a printed out list that I fill out that has slipped in my Bible that looks like a bookmark. If you are under the age of 30, a bookmark is something we used to slip inside paper books so that you remember where you were inside of the book. I'm almost entirely digital in my reading now. I've done a million Bible reading plans through the YouVersion Bible app. I've done year through the Bible. I've done the Bible projects year through the Bible where I watch their videos and in the beginning of the year, I'm like, awesome, I got all these videos. And by the end of the I'm like, oh my gosh, another video reading through the Bible. I've done chronological. I've done New Testament. I've focused on different specific books. I've walked through all of them, some with success, some with struggle and guilt as I got into what normally happens July and August and my vacation series changes my patterns. And then maybe for some of you, then September comes and your children are back at school and then you're totally off the rails with your Bible reading plan. What our goals are is not so much to check off boxes, but is to enter and understand the narrative of Scripture, what God is trying to teach us, to tell us, to reveal to us who he is. We use a phrase here whenever we talk about the Bible, and it is this, that the Bible is a unified story, both human and divine, that leads to Jesus. Can you repeat that back with me? I don't have a slide for it, so you're really going to have to work at it. I'll say it one more time. The Bible is a unified story, both human and divine, that leads to Jesus. Can we do it together? On three. One, two, three. The Bible is a unified story, both human and divine, that leads to Jesus. Oh, great. You guys did great. Let's start with the unified story. The Bible is a unified story. Can you throw me my phone? Actually, no. Can you hand me my phone? Thank you. This is a multimedia part of the presentation this morning, so I need my phone. I'm going to play a song for you. Give me a little more. I feel like you gave me less. All right, you may know this song. 
if you've ever been to a wedding. Or if you're a music major, this is a significant song. It's Pachelbel's Canon, specifically in D. Pachelbel's Canon. You might recognize it from that. What you may not know is this is also Pachelbel's Canon. This is Maroon 5's Memories. Also, Pachelbel's Canon. Same melody, same chord progression. Different arrangement, different lyrics. Also, Pachelbel's Canon. What you might not know, this is also Pachelbel's Canon. Same melody, same chord progression. If you're in your 30s like me, you might be familiar with this song. I won't go further into it. If you're older, this song, Let It Be by the Beatles, also Pachelbel's Canon. Same melody, same chord progression. A beautiful version of it, but Pachelbel's Canon all the same. And you may be like, well, these are all kind of guitar-driven songs. It's like the same thing. This song, also Pachelbel's Canon. This is Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry. This is also the same chord progression, the same melody. If you've watched Barbie this year, you would be more familiar with this song again. Matchbox 20's Push, also Pachelbel's Canon. Same melody, same chord progression. Now you may be sitting there and you're going, well, I don't really listen to modern music. I'm an old soul, so you're not gonna get me. Well, let me ruin it for you. Take Me Home, Country Road by John Denver. Pachelbel's Canon, same chord progression, same melody. It's all the same song, just arranged differently. You can go on Spotify and look up playlists of 50 or 60 popular songs, all Pachelbel's canon. It is a universal melody used in almost every successful song. Here's the key. It is one melody arranged differently with different lyrics. As we study scripture, it is one melody arranged differently and different lyrics 66 times. It's one melody refrained over and over and over again. You may read Joshua and you may read Malachi and you may read Revelation and they feel very different. The voice is different. The tone is different. They're focusing on different things. But underneath each biblical story is the same melody, is the same song being played over and over again. Exodus tells us what that melody is, a strong refrain. This is the biblical melody. The melody of the Bible is creation, enslavement, freedom, and renewal. That's the biblical melody. Creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. Creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. Creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal over and over and over. It's the melody. We see it in Exodus really clearly and powerfully. Exodus 1, 1 through 7, creation. How did God create this family? How did they get here? How did he form them into this community? Exodus 1, 8 through 11 is enslavement, how they became enslaved into this foreign nation. Exodus chapters 3 through 14 is freedom, how that freedom was brought about, how God won it for his people, how he delivered them. And then Exodus 15 through 40 is renewal, how he renews them into a new community, a new people again, creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. What follows Exodus almost makes the point even more formally. It's Joshua and Judges, where we see 
creation of a new nation in their new land, falling into enslavement of their own will and way, enslavement to foreign nations that come in. God delivers them in freedom to renew them again, and then it begins again. If you've ever read the book of Judges, regardless of one dramatic story about a very strong man with very long hair, is a pattern over and over again of creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. Creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. Over and over, that book can be so painful for that reason. It feels like you're on a treadmill of freedom and failure. As you read scripture, or as you, on your own, attempt a devotional life, keep that melody going. It will breathe new life into the text as you read it. Whether you're reading in Exodus, Hosea, or Revelation, ask yourself, where is the melody of creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal? If you need me to give you some examples, let's do it. When you read the Psalms, they talk about trees and quiet fields, deers beside still waters. It is a reference to creation. God's creation moving in us. And then you read the prophets and you read destructive patterns of sin and foreign nations coming to enslave and you see enslavement. When you read the moments of God's promise in the prophets of a Messiah to come and set them free, their longing is for freedom. And then when you get to Ezekiel and he has this long, twisted prophetic word about living waters pouring out of a temple and bringing life back to dry bones, it is renewal. It is creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. When you get to the Gospels and you read the four accounts of Jesus' life, when you read John, John tells that before the creation of the world, he was. He is creation embodied. And then Jesus encounters demons, illnesses. He encounters uh, powers of inequality. And he sees enslavement. When Jesus dies on a cross... He becomes a sacrificial lamb, and when he conquers death in the grave, he brings freedom from sin and death for all creation. And then he breathes his spirit onto his people to renew them as a new community. Creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. I could do this all day throughout the whole Bible. You can do this on your own, and I encourage you this year to do it. And if at the end of 2024 you come back to me and you're like, Pastor Brian, I can't get Pachelbel's canon out of my head. I will take that as a win, and hopefully it is driving you back to the melody of Scripture. The Bible is a unified story. It's telling a unified story of creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. It is also a story that's human and divine. Exodus is a story that is human and divine. It tells a human story about a human people group living under an oppressive foreign regime. What did this book mean to these people? As we read it, that is important. It's an ancient book that declares more than 3,000 years ago that the creator of the universe descended into a unique people group and delivered them from oppression in Egypt. It is their story of formation. It is the story of what it means to be an Israelite, what it means to be Jewish, is to look back on the story of Exodus and to know our people 
The God we worship and know cares about us, stepped in, set us free, and formed us around these laws that we call the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. It is a story of deliverance that is repeated over and over again for the Israelites, and it becomes identity formation. It's how they know who they are. As Maddie even read earlier in Deuteronomy 6, don't forget this story of Exodus. Tell yourselves it. Remind yourselves it. It's who you are. It's the formation of these people. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12 says, Be careful to not forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. This is the story of these people. 2 Kings 17.38 says again, Do not forget the covenant I made with you and do not worship other gods. Do not forget Sinai. Do not forget the Ten Commandments. Do not forget the formation I made with you. Or Psalm 78 verse 7. The psalmist writes, So each generation should set its hope anew on God not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Don't forget the story of who you are, this people that was set free. The themes of Exodus are powerful and are so ubiquitous that we can see them throughout culture and how we tell stories in the Western world. Themes of enslavement, of God hearing the cry of his people, a human as God's intervening tool in Moses, deliverance by blood and by sacrifice, provision in the wilderness, a covenant between a God and his people, a revelation of God's name and character. These are Exodus themes for these people that have become almost universal for Western civilization. Exodus is the account of a real group of people who have suffered historically and in their survival, have pointed to the intervention of the God who created them, foundational to their identity. As we read the story of Exodus and the Bible in general, put yourself as often as you can into the context of the authors, who are a small community among massive, violent kingdoms in the ancient world, who have faith that God has a higher calling and purpose for them, and that even when they suffer, they can trust that their God will hear them, rescue them, and reform them. It is also divine. It is the Holy Spirit working through authors that write these texts to reveal to us the universal nature of who God is. It is human, it's their story. It is divine, it is our story of humanity. God's character is revealed in Exodus more than any other Old Testament book. Directly in two passages, God reveals who he is. In Exodus chapter three, we see God reveal his character to Moses at a burning bush. It goes like this, but Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and I tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. They will ask me, well, what's his name? Then what do I say to them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. A being who does not need others, who has never changed, who is self-sufficient, consistent, and fulfills his promises is the one who sends you. We know the name of God because of Exodus. And in Exodus 34, we will study this at the end of the series, God reveals his character in two verses, Exodus 34, verses 6 and verses 7, that are quoted throughout the Bible more than any other two verses in all of Scripture. 
the nature of God himself as slow to anger, quick to forgive. In Exodus, we as modern people are reminded that the God who made all of this, everything we see, touch, experience, smell, know, that this God who made us is not an unmoved mover, distant from his creation, but is a God who cares about his creation, who hears the suffering of his people and responds, who steps into his creation and renews and sets free and responds to our needs. We know the character of God because he has told us his character and he has demonstrated it in Exodus. I sat this summer in uh, our national conference of the Assemblies of God. It's wonderful. I get to hear from different thought leaders in our denomination and meet with other ministers I know but live far away. And I sat in one and heard a minister share his story of his suffering during the time of the pandemic. And his story was tragic, but also hopeful. He lost his wife. He lost his father. He lost his father-in-law. He lost one of his key elders, all to illnesses during this. And he also experienced all the suffering all the rest of us experienced. And he shared this story in this sermon. And one of the points that he said was, God is good regardless of my experience of him in this world. I heard that. And I said, yeah, I think that's true. But also then, how do I know he's good? Just because I say it? An intellectual idea that I'm supposed to believe? Or is he good because he demonstrates it? Exodus is the story routinely pointed back to throughout Scripture of why we know God is good. He is good because he stepped in and rescued he is good because he answered the prayers. He is good because he delivered. He is good because he provided. I said, I, I think I need evidence. I'm a man of faith, but not blind faith. The story of Exodus is evidence that points for us modern readers now to the even greater evidence we have that I could say, and that this pastor could say, I may have lost my spouse. I may have lost my father. I may have lost my mother-in-law. I may have lost one of my key elders. I may have wrestled with a lot of people's anger and political divisions as a pastor. But I know because I know in the gospel stories that every person I've lost, I will see again because of the resurrection. Because the evidence that Jesus Christ is alive and I know beyond what a doubt could be that even in the division of us, all of our sins are paid for and the divisions are covered by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And there is evidence that tells me that God is good because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in doing this, Jesus is building on the foundation of what God promised us in Exodus. And to this point, Exodus itself as a book yearns for Jesus. It yearns for him. We read the dramatic story of Moses, born into a genocide, rescued and then raised in privilege, who then wrestled with his own calling and who he is, his identity. Am I Egyptian? Am I Jewish? What am I? Falls into his own human strength, murders someone, then in his guilt and shame wastes the next 40 years of his life running from his calling, in depression, figuring out who he is, to then come and rescue his people 
to deliver them from Egypt into the desert where immediately the first thought of the Israelites is, it was better when I was a slave. It was better back then. Yeah, I was a slave, but I had three square meals a day and I knew where my home was and it was better when I was a slave to then form a community that routinely fails and fails and fails and to watch the pattern again of creation, freedom, uh, creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. When you read Exodus, there is dramatic power and beauty, but there's also this longing that it's not quite right. That Moses himself, the Bible says, the most humble man who ever lived, Moses maybe wrote those words, which, you know, you can wrestle with that on your own. But in that, he still fails morally and can't go into the land. His people fail in the desert and have to wander and die for 40 years. And when they get into the promised land, they do everything that God warns them not to do. Don't think that all of this is by your own strength. And then we're like, we did this all on our own. Don't form for yourself a king who will take advantage of you. And they demand a king. Don't make treaties with foreign nations who will abuse you. And they make treaties with foreign nations. And there is a longing in us that even though we see shadows of the beauty of God working in his people, there is still something deeply broken. That the prophets point us to Jesus. Jesus, who is an instrument of God's working in the world, born into a genocide, miraculously saved, who is a perfect being because he is God, who lives and delivers and heals and teaches. And where the blood of a lamb is smeared onto a door in Exodus, the blood of God himself is offered onto a doorway of the crucifix for our freedom in life. Moses goes up onto the mountaintop and he encounters God in Exodus 28 and Exodus 34. And he comes back from the mountaintop changed. It's scary for people, his face glows. Just one little moment of one human being being in God's presence and he's glowing. We see the biblical authors show us the direct connection of Jesus to Exodus in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and his two brothers, James and John. He led them up on a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. I wonder about that conversation. If they're saying, like, I'm I'm so grateful that you have stepped into this, that you're doing what we could not, that you worked through us, you shared with us, but we ultimately failed in our own calling and our own leadership. But now you are here and you can finish what we could not. That now that you've put on flesh, you can lead your people into eternal life. You can lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey that never ends. You can deliver them from the oppression, not of a foreign nation, but of the frailty of fallen creation itself. You can deliver them from their sin. And that I like to think that the disciples standing there, watching Jesus, standing with Moses and Elijah, would think back to the story of Exodus 
and make all these connections. Of, oh yeah, he was born into a genocide. He's delivering us from freedom. He is leading us and teaching us about God. It's a new covenant that he's forming in us. I love that it says about Peter, he had no idea what to do, so he made up something and said, we should build an altar. I love that it says he had no idea how to respond to this. It is on a mountain that God reveals himself to his people and they struggle to know him. It is on a mountain that Jesus reveals himself to his people and we struggle to know him. As we read Exodus, I want us to see Jesus throughout every page of the story, to see that melody that comes in its full form in Jesus of creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal, to ask that question of our own lives. Where do I see that pattern in myself of creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. Where do I see I got this new job and God is creating this new opportunity for me and I'm taking it, I'm making it for my own glory and I'm cheating and competing against the other people at work and I'm insecure and I'm working for my own ends that I feel like I'm good enough here. I'm becoming enslaved to the thing God created in me. Where do I need his freedom and renewal to bring his glory into it? Ultimately, the story of Exodus is not a story about freedom. It is a story about relationship. God does not bring freedom for freedom's sake. God does not bring salvation for salvation's sake. He brings it so that he could be known and could experience his people. In Exodus 25, verse 8, it says, Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary, so I can live among them. The goal of getting the Israelites out of Egypt was not so they would form their own nation, was not so they wouldn't suffer in slavery. It was so that he could be with his people and they could know him and he could live among them. The goal of Christ Jesus coming into the earth, sure, to teach us about what it means to be in the kingdom. Sure, to pay for our sins with his own blood on the cross. Sure, to conquer death in the resurrection. But all of that to the end of being known by his people and being in communion with us again. And we only do it through one way, and that's the deliverance and the person of Christ Jesus. Exodus points us back to yearn for the freedom and relationship that comes in Jesus. If you could bow your heads with me this morning. You may be in the room this morning. Maybe you haven't studied Exodus. You may be new to church. And you may say, well, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity just to take one step of faith into that relationship, to know God a little better this morning than you did coming in. If you are a follower of Jesus, you could take this moment as a recommittal, as a realignment, as a renewal moment. If you pray with me, Jesus, in this moment, I need you to break me of the cycle of creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal. I need your presence in me to free me and renew me now and forevermore. 
I am aware of the things that enslave me. I am aware of my own limitations. And I need you to set me free, to heal me and make me new. Jesus, I believe that you are God and man in one flesh, that you came to this earth, you taught us how to live, you've demonstrated your power over sin and death and healings and deliverance, and that you paid for our sin on the cross. You took our burden and punishment, you took our enslavement, and you became the sacrifice. You died, and on the third day, you raised from the grave, bringing freedom for all of us that call on you. And Jesus, I recognize my sin, my need for you, and may you give me your presence by your spirit that I may be renewed and like you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For all of us, as the team plays one final song, I'll invite up our prayer team on my right and on my left. We would love to just pray with you at the start of this year season. You may be asking a lot of questions at this time as to what do I do? Who am I? What changes do I need to make in this new year? And we want to just come alongside you and just pray in that with you. Otherwise, I will invite you that wherever you are, as we sing this last song, as we pray this out, to think about the melody of God's story and scripture and ask the Holy Spirit, where do you want me to lean into your presence this year? Maybe it is a new Bible reading plan or a commitment. If I don't make a plan to read the Bible, I won't. If I don't make a plan to do anything, I won't. And maybe this morning, and it's totally fine, while everyone else is singing, if you're on your YouVersion Bible app and you're flipping through and you're like, this is the one, I'm clicking in, I, I can invite friends, ooh, I'm inviting the, do it. That is a 100% legitimate response this morning. If you're there, maybe you are reading your scripture, you're saying, but Jesus, make yourself real and alive to me this morning. The altar space is open to respond, to press into his presence. Our prayer team is up here to just pray that you would receive the spirit and his presence this morning. If you stand with me, if you can, all over the room. As I pray out this last prayer, when I say amen, that's your cue to respond. You can begin writing, figuring it out, come forward, receive, respond. When I say amen, Lord, we thank you for the story of Exodus. We thank you that it is not theory, it is not philosophy, that our faith is history. It is what you have done. And we build our faith and expectation of what you will do based on what you have done. And we lean into your character because it has been revealed to us in scripture and in Jesus. And Jesus, may we know you more intimately this morning. We give this time and space to you in your name. Amen.